0: It is so much fun to be back in the building, for some of you, first time in a while. For me, first time in a week and a half. I was in Chicago last week uh, looking at colleges with my twin daughters, and as cool as that city is, it is no Austin, let me tell you, so it's good to be back. As you know, today is the third week in Lent, which is an extended 40-day, you know this, sort of a, a, a parallel journey to Jesus' journey in the wilderness that also follows the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. That was a 40-year journey. But, so we're, this is the third week, so we're in now. We're moving, right? And we've been building and working with this theme that we're calling Home by Another Way, which is actually a title of a book by Barbara Brown Taylor, which is a collection of sermons that I read years ago. So props to you, Barbara, for that title. Home by Another Way. We've been working with this now for several weeks. And I don't know how the Lenten box discussions are going in your home but in my home, they've offered incredible opportunities to replace tired old belief structures and shame and fear and guilt and all the junk we taught our kids when they were tater tots and instead rediscover together a big love and a wide table and a wilderness that's capable of taking us home, all of us home, all the way home if we can only trust that what the dry and lonely places take will be replaced in time with new life. It's the Easter story, it's the whole thing in a capsule, and we're well on our way now. So today the lectionary invites us to turn our attention to the Ten Commandments, or as Jewish scholars know them, the Ten Teachings, which is the title that I actually prefer for reasons that you'll, uh, be, that should be very clear after this morning. You see, a commandment is so much more powerful and bludgeon-like than a teaching, Right? A teaching implies that there is time to learn it, maybe a semester or possibly a quarter, time to understand it, even to master it. A teaching implies a journey. A teaching isn't a suggestion. It's much, much stronger than that, but it feels harder to weaponize a teaching than a commandment. A commandment feels so hit or miss, so pass or fail, and that doesn't feel like the right angle here, as you'll see. Before I get too far into this, let's read our text together, and it comes to us from the book of Exodus chapter 20, titled this way, the Ten Commandments in our English texts. Verse 1, then God spoke all these words, colon, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me, and that's number one, commandment number one. You shall not make yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Commandment number two. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And all the parents in the house said, "Uh uh-oh, of those who reject me, further commentary on that second commandment, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. That's number three. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's number four. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, you shall not do any work, your son, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your town. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Further commentary on the commandment to rest. He goes on, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he consecrated it, which means set it aside as holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God that the Lord your God is giving you that's number 5. You shall not murder or kill in the original language that's number 6 you shall not commit adultery that's number 7 you shall not steal number 8 you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor number 9 and finally you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey darn he said donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And that's number 10. So there you have it. The ancient list of guidelines or teachings upon which much of our modern Western Christian world claims to have been built. Generally speaking, a little confession here, the Ten Commandments bring up a certain kind of spiritual trauma for me, if I'm honest. Honestly, when you read through some of these, some of these feel easy. I'm not into the neighbor's donkey, right? Like Some of these feel easy, even logical. Others feel hard, almost impossible. Some of these, it seems to me, our entire culture is built on ignoring. I mean, do we really know what it means to covet? If to want or to desire more than we already have is wrong, what's left of any of this? I mean, that's the deepest American value that I can see. Where's the good news in this list of thou shalt not? You might say, well, it's just the Old Testament, there's no good news here. I don't know, Jesus isn't much help when he summarizes these. By the time he's done, these teachings will take on a new form, and he will bring them into the Sermon on the Mount. You know the form, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Anyway, all of us will end up guilty by the time Jesus is done. And when you put these prohibitions in the hands of hard, judgmental men of brittle and unbending faith, things get broken, mostly people. So, I grew up in or tethered to the cultural, philosophical docks and buoys of the rural south. That's true for a lot of us. Always with our fists up, always fighting some kind of encroachment on our way of life, whether real or imagined. We were taught that it was precisely when the Ten Commandments were removed forcibly, although that's a bad read of law, from the classroom bulletin boards. We were taught when they were removed from the courthouse courtyards in 1980 that education and with it everything we cherished began to crumble. America lost her soul when God was taken out of schools was how I was, it was explained to me as a kid, forgetting, I guess, our own biblical text that teaches us, as you recall, God's original objective was always to write his teachings on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. What I understand now more clearly than ever is that you can't take God out of anything, All of this, everything you see and experience, look around, everything you understand and feel in this world is part of God's unfolding. God's all the way inside of all of it. There are no places where God is not. This taking God out of our public schools language now feels to me like just another political strategy to get Christians to vote for a certain political party and to put them in power. The party switch, don't marry one. You know what I'm talking about. Read your history. It's the very same kind of political, social, collective power run amok, interestingly enough, that these 10 teachings restrain if we read them well and allow them to be written on our hearts. It's that kind of power that they hold at bay. These commandments belong on our hearts. I have no argument with the wisdom of these teachings. My argument is with the way society hides behind them, posting them as if we understood them while we build and maintain unjust societies under a Christian flag in the shadow of these stone tablets that we've made into idols of their own. I embrace every single one of these divine teachings as long as we agree that posting them on the wall doesn't equal living by them. I think, if I'm honest, upon further reflection, that the walls of our public school classrooms, the front yards of our southern homes, and the courtyards of our courthouses are a poor substitute for the heart, as it turns out. These ten teachings represent a meaningful move forward in the sequence of divine revelations, divine self-disclosures by God. They come after Abraham's covenant with God, which came much after Noah's covenant with the same God, as you know. To Noah and his descendants... God promised restraint from the very beginning. He retired his war bow, literally hanging it up in the sky where all could see, promising never again to destroy with water what he loved. Remember that? Go back a couple of weeks in our podcast if you missed that sermon. Generations later, after Noah, God promises to bless Abraham or Abram and Sarai, and through them all the nations of the earth. By the way, Abraham and Sarah, as you remember, were about as good at waiting on God as we are, which is not very. But grace covered even this, even their desperation. Hagar and Ishmael were extended the same blessings as Abraham, as Sam pointed out last week. These ten teachings don't function as the locked gates or the bolted doors that kept Israel from God's blessing or approval unless she obeyed them flawlessly to the letter of the law. God had already issued a covenant with Israel, one that featured astonishing divine self-restraint. And God's covenants with humanity had already gone through several upgrades, Uh, Several versions by the time these ten teachings come along never neglect the sequence friends it matters These are not the conditions upon which God would evaluate the acceptability or lovability of humanity as if God could not approach or Make God's home among them unless they lived in flawless compliance with these instructions. That's just a bad read y'all Why because God had already made God's move towards humankind God had already decided to dwell among the inhabitants of a material cosmos. They are not, these are not the conditions, these ten commandments of God's favor. These are the principles of freedom, of living free, of living harmoniously in society among neighbors. And if you don't understand this, you might be tempted to think that these are the very things that make people good or bad, sinful or righteous, acceptable to God or not. But it's so much deeper than that. Don't forget, God liberated an enslaved nation, the Hebrew people, who served in Egypt for almost half a millennia. And this people, having no previously recorded principles upon which to build a society of their own, received the law, which begins with these ten teachings. These teachings become the basis of justice and freedom, but they come well after God hung up his weapons of war. Long after Abram and Sarah were promised again and again and finally saw the fulfillment of God's multiplication of their seed beyond their wildest dreams. These aren't conditions. These are principles. God's grace and blessing and co- in his commitment predate these stipulations. You mustn't forget that. We mustn't forget that. And as it turns out, being set free and staying free are two very different things, aren't they? God does one, and we must do the other. So how do we make sense of these 10 teachings then? Well, the simplest way is to break them into two groups. The first five deal with our relationship with God, with that sort of bridge in the middle of a Sabbath rest. And they're followed by the next five, or the, uh, the five that teach us, this, the second side of the tablets, that teach us how to deal with our neighbors and to deal with one another. You know that there can never be a distinction, right? How we deal with people is 100% connected To how we deal with God. You can't be right with God and wrong with people. Maybe this is why Jesus summarized the entirety of the law and the prophets this way. He simply said, love God and love people. How exactly do those two things connect? Maybe there's a million ways. Maybe there's 7.3 billion ways. Well, one way that works for me is simply this thought that God loves people so much that he takes personally the way people are treated. Like saying, you pick on them, you picked on me. Another way of understanding this might be, people are actual extensions of God's self. Maybe there is no distinction as we were taught. That's a considerably bigger idea, I know. So take your time with that one. It messes with your sense of how God and the world are divided. Maybe there is no division as we thought there was. Anyway, there has to be some gospel buried here. Even in these verses that were often weaponized to divide and belittle and exclude. So let's take our time with these, going verse by verse. Maybe we'll see something for the first time. These will be on your screen. Starting from the beginning. Then God spoke all these words. Then meaning, of course, after what just happened. And you'd have to read back chapter 19 to know what this refers to. But summarized for you. It was the whole dramatic scene of God calling the Israelite nation to the foot of a mountain to receive these 10 teachings. Some of it feels literally frightening, like frightening on purpose. I'm not sure what to make of all of the details, but it got their attention. Verse two goes on, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, paraphrased says, I am God who saw you, who saw your unfair, unjust situation and miraculously opening oceans and slaying armies, I set you free. You were slaves, but you are not slaves anymore. And it almost feels like everything that follows this point in their story will in some way be about addressing their former state of captivity and how they might remain free after God liberated them. uh, Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. There will be no need to elevate any other God above the one who sees and sets you free, is the logical flow here. You will see alternatives, God seems to promise them, but you won't need them. Gods who demand, gods who kill, gods who bind and curse are plenty, but you won't need them. Stick with the God who sets you free. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the sea. This is where it gets really interesting, you guys. So hang on for this. Here, this fiery mountain god, this Patagonia god, wrapped in smoke and thunder, seems to know exactly how we humans think and act. When we find something divine, what do we do? We elevate it. We always have I think we do this not because we're dumb, but because we know a common hallmark, a common signature, a common point of origin when we see it, meaning as descendants of God, God's self, as tiny embers of the bonfire of divine life, we recognize the origin of things. We see it in the condor, in the jellyfish, and in the liturgies and the revelations our neighbors cherish and celebrate. So, this God of Moses preempts what comes next. He says, Nothing created gets to fully embody or completely describe what I am like. Don't accept modified, filtered, limited versions of the real deal when you can have all of me. It's the gospel and the prohibition to find idols. They're unnecessary, they're reductions. Verse five, you shall not bow down to them. And he goes on to further commentate on that concept. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now, hang on. Again, we must not settle for lesser versions of me, God seems to say. There are many, but they aren't the whole picture. Now, hear this, because I want all of you. This is a breathtaking idea. If you settle for less than all of me, God seems to say, less than the full embodiment, then this will put into motion ways of thinking, narratives, mythologies, and super shitty religious structures that transfer to your kids for several generations. Now, this word punish is interesting. It can also be rendered as visit, this idea that God will visit or revisit or circle back for generations. If anyone settles for less than 100% of the embodiment of God, as if to say bad thinking about God loops, it comes back around. And the multi-generational fruit of that is punishment. It's it's settling for less than all of God. I hope you hear his heart in this text. But then add this to verse 5, because there's there's no break there in the original Hebrew. But showing steadfast love. To the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments verse six and verse five are a single idea a single concept and that should tell us something god is saying i am jealous i do want all of you says god if you settle for less that kind of small thinking transfers for three to four generations there are consequences but but steadfast love is something that goes on and on and on to a thousand generations This is an intentionally absurd number, I hope you can see that, designed to make the listener go, thousand generations? Who can count that high? Thousand generations describes the natural shelf life of God's steadfast love. His unchanging love, unquestionable love and support from God. Oh, friends, right here in the middle of this passage that has been used to make people feel ashamed and small and flawed is this reminder, this incredible idea that there is essentially no expiration date on God's love. He goes on in verse 7, You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. And just to seal the previous idea, God reminds this gathered people, these former slaves assembled at the foot of this scary smoking mountain, that his brand, his name, shall not be deployed wrongfully. There is authority in the name of God, and God changes the names of what he loves and who he enters into contracts with. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So given all of this, the text seems to say, rest relax. Put down your tools and stop making progress. Do nothing intentionally, God seems to be saying. Your physical limitations, your built-in rhythms of life and your energy, it matters. It's like God is warning the people that going too far too fast will equal the loss of hard-earned freedom. Oh, we know that's true. Build in a break, he says, like God did. Verse 9, six days, for their commentary on the concept of rest. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. In other words, don't not be productive, just keep it in bounds. He goes on, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, I wish you would have mentioned the wives as well. Your male and female slaves, your livestock and the alien resident in your towns. Essentially saying, no exceptions, this rest applies to all of you. Notice the very intentional deconstruction of all forms of social strata and structure and meaning. Even the animals are included. Don't rest by making your health work harder. Put it all down, says God. For in six days, in case we needed more, verse 11, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that was in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he consecrated it. Oh, friends, this God repeats himself like the chorus of a Hillsong song, doesn't he? (laughs) In case there was any doubt about this principle of regular rest, God offers this reminder. Even I get tired and rest from productivity. There is some kind of hidden pot of blessing, of recuperation, of refreshment if you unplug and put down the hammer, put down the pen, and put down the cell phone. And in case you needed to know, this God leads by example. Changing direction slightly in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is a basic, just basic logic. Keep peace at home and show honor. It all stays in the water, so don't piss in the water, right? He seems to be saying. Verse 13. You shall not murder. Actually, the word here is kill. Don't kill. That goes a different direction. Sometimes I wonder if this should apply to all forms of taking life. Here's what I know all life is sacred as you know, including that of our enemies. This is not easy, especially when Jesus uh, will go on to claim that anger itself is the same as murder. He says, don't take life, it's sacred. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Well, this could be its own sermon. In fact, all of these could be their own sermon. This could be its own 10-part sermon series. I just offer you this little thing that I've learned the hard way over 27 years of faithful, monogamous, committed marriage. The greatest gift of love isn't it's built it is its built-in capacity to age well. Finding new love isn't the secret to happiness. Finding newness in love is and I wish there were some people in the house that could just give me an amen. Newness doesn't equal freedom. Freedom is available either way. Verse 15. You shall not steal. As if to say, everything will be provided for you by me. I am your source. You no longer need to hustle and scam and look out for yourself as you did when you had needs that no one looked after. I have set you free, God says. And in verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Your neighbor is as important as you. And lying to get a leg up is not acceptable anymore. No more need for the hustle. We're getting to the end. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor as if to say satisfaction and contentment are 100% available to you right now. There is no need to add anything you don't already have in order to be happy, put down, desire, and be in this moment. We could go on for days with these ancient teachings, but we don't have the time. I wonder, can you see the grace here? There has always been grace here. It never wasn't available. God didn't suddenly learn how to forgive humanity after Jesus was murdered. Hundreds of years before Jesus lived and died, the poets sang of these mercies that were new with every morning. What God did to Israel, for Israel, through Israel in these ancient stories was intended for all people in all places. That's how we connect to these ancient narratives. Small thinking, mythology based in fear, obsessive focus on a limited aspect of the divine to the exclusion of the whole. The pain of these will last for three to four generations, but the steadfast love and the mercy of God goes on for a thousand years. Generations. Oh, what good news. Make no mistake, unending love and divine restraint is what holds this all together. The freedom we were given will take courage, courageous obedience to these teachings precisely to maintain that freedom, but God's favor predates these teachings by a long shot. It's not really that hard, honestly, to disarm these weaponized texts that were used for other purposes in our upbringing. I know many of you were wounded by these commandments, preached at us by angry men. But there is good news here. If you trust yourself to read them with an open heart. Nevertheless, I understand it is true. The gods of our youth may have to die for us to see a more enduring truth, a fuller picture, a more complete embodiment of love. And so we gather around the ruins And we remind ourselves that love goes on for a thousand generations, which is to say it goes on and on and on and on. Does your faith allow for this? It must, friends. If we're going to let love remake us, if we're going to find our way through this Lenten wilderness, if we're going to take our place in the new life as it rises from the ruins of shipwrecked faith on the other side, we're going to have to make peace withstanding in the ruins of lesser versions of God that no longer live and breathe. One way or another, we will find our way home. Love itself will wear us down. Beauty will weaken our resistance. Age will simplify things until we see most clearly. We are held by a love that lasts a thousand generations. We were set free to remain free, not to rush back into bondage, These 10 teachings describe the freest way we can live. So let's write them on our hearts where they belong. Pray with me. Lord, we welcome the work of love in our lives. And we willingly uproot the, the work of shame and judgment to make room for the work of love, which has the astonishing capacity to fold us in and everything around us. In such a way that makes us a continuation of how you are in the world. How you are so in love with setting things free. Let that love remake us even today on our Lenten journey in your name we pray. Amen.